Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about the economics of golf. A lot of economics there, it turns out. Uh, so stick around. But yeah. First, we wanted to talk about China, uh, and the data point there is 4, as in 4%. That is the estimated growth rate in China this year, which would be enviable for many Western countries, but in China's case, it represents a shortfall from the 5.5% growth that was expected just a few months ago. For more than two decades, China's economy has been the dependable engine for global economic growth. But that engine is starting to splutter. That's just one data point among others that suggests China may be in a recession right now. The world's second largest economy is slowing. Consumer confidence is hovering near record lows. Private investment slowed down in the first half of the year. And youth unemployment apparently is at a record 19% right now. So, yeah, anytime the world's second largest economy is in a recession, uh, it seems like something worth thinking about. So... Adam, um, I guess I'd start out by asking, you know, how I just mentioned a bunch of data coming from China, and I was curious how accurate the data uh, from the Chinese government is uh, about its own economy. I mean, how much would that impede our ability to tell whether the country's in a recession in the first place? Yeah, I mean, when you when you have a situation where four percent growth is probably a recession. Uh, you know, mm. you know, there's something there's something odd about the numbers. They're not the same as the numbers that we use in the West, because in the in the West it would be two quarters of negative growth in GDP that would that would you know generally be seen as the definition of a recession. Um, the Chinese numbers are different. I mean, I think it's important to clarify though that we don't generally, I think, spend a lot of time worrying about outright statistical fraud. So political authorities in Beijing dictating that the, you know, the inflation number should be X when it's actually Y. Um, but numbers like GDP are question begging to an extent, right? But it, in every circumstance, GDP is a very complex notion. Gross domestic product is the aggregate of total production of services and goods throughout the economy. And it is, you know, adjusted for value added, it is adjusted for prices. It's a very complex notion under the best circumstances. And the fundamental issue with the GDP numbers in China is it's not obvious whether those statistics are, if you like, sort of ex post uh, external assessments of what's happening, or more like performance targets. Um, and policy instruments. In other words, Beijing says growth should be 4%. And so then hmm. the regional authorities across China bend every effort towards delivering that, right? So it's more like a kind of corporate target than than a GDP measurement in the sense that we're familiar with in the West. I mean, so 
disconcerting, so unstable is our confidence in the GDP numbers in China, in particular that there's a whole variety, a whole batch of different measurements, including satellite measurements of you know, factory activity and transport measures and so on that, that are commonly used as substitutes for GDP. And if you take a broader measure of um, China's situation right now, there's really no doubt that the Chinese economy is in serious trouble, probably the most serious bout of weakness it's seen since the beginning of the report, reform period in the 1980s. And so many indicators point in that direction right now. And, and so, you know, willing is Beijing to acknowledge the fact that it is in trouble, that, that a, a truly fake number, you know, would, would just, would just um, stand out like a sore thumb. It, it wouldn't be an effective way of committing a statistical fraud because it would be so obviously out of line with everything else that's going on. And there's too much money at stake, investments in China, for you know, for not a, a huge amount of attention not to be paid to, to the details of these figures. So, complexity, opacity, ambiguity in what the numbers mean, rather than outright fraud, I think is the name of the game in China. Gotcha. Okay. Regardless of what the precise numbers are, it does seem clear that at the center of China's economic problems are a bursting real estate bubble, in in essence. And yeah, that got me wondering: how did this bubble? inflate in the first place. And then also to look at the response to this bursting bubble, it seems like China is uh, has been lowering interest rates. And I was curious, yeah, what are the risks of doing that at a moment like this in the rest of the world where we see other countries essentially universally raising interest rates? So how does that all, all fit together, Adam? Yeah, to think of this as a housing bubble in the conventional sense rather understates the drama of what we're talking about. I mean, this the the house China's housing bubble is 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 a synonym for the the most dramatic process of urbanization that our species have ever, has ever witnessed. So China mm. went from being a, a huge country with one billion people in 1980, of which 20% lived in urban areas, slightly less than 20%, to being the even bigger society we know today with 1.4 billion people 40 years later, of which 65% live in urban areas. So. A, a, an epic number, hundreds of millions of Chinese people move from the countryside to cities, um, gigantic cities of tens of millions of people, but also a whole array of what by any standards of the world are very, very large cities and medium-sized towns across this giant country. And that's what is the making of the Chinese bubble. To call it a bubble just sort of understates the mm. drama. I mean, China didn't have a private property system until the late 1990s. And in the space of a single generation, it's created a flywheel of wealth generation, the likes of which we've never seen before. And that's that's the China bubble. This isn't like a bunch of, you know, Mac mansions in Florida or something. This is this is a, a radical transformation of a large part of the earth. It literally involved digging out vast quantities of iron ore, you know, uh, build, making vast quantities of cement. I mean, China's thought to have poured more cement in three years in the 2010s than the United States in the entire 20th century. So we're, we're talking about convulsive change. This is... And this is the Anthropocene, like a physical transformation of the, the world on a gigantic scale in a very short period of time. And yes, that does then generate around the edges some kind of frothiness, you know, in the financial system. Unsurprisingly, quite a lot of money gets made and lost in the process of doing this. And the Chinese have decided to prick this bubble, which itself is remarkable. And now they are dealing with the fallout as the bubble deflates and deflates dramatically. And yeah, they're trying to lower interest rates, which is the kind of conventional monetary policy tool faced with a crisis like this. You try and make credit easier. This is indeed counter to what every other central bank in the world is doing right now, which is to try and counter inflation, which is not a problem in China. 
with higher interest rates. And that creates tension where it creates tension on the balance of payments in the foreign account because Chinese assets become less attractive as the interest rates go down relative to assets in the rest of the world, which become more attractive as interest rates go up. And so the risk is that you have you know, tension on the on the foreign account, um, that you could have capital flight even. And this isn't a pure hypothetical in 2015, 2016, the last time the Chinese economy was in real trouble. Um, there was very substantial capital flight. And that would really be worrying for Beijing. But the response to the crisis in 2015, 2016 was that Beijing intensified its controls. And so right now, though foreign investors are pulling back from China, um, we haven't seen anything like that kind of capital flight. I think the bigger concern is actually domestic, which is that um, whether the Chinese will be able to carry through, if you like, the purging of the real estate market that will be necessary to restore something like stability, because they may, in a sense, flinch. They may they may not really be able to carry through the kind of weeding out of this overexpanded sector that would be necessary to really restore the basis for healthy growth. And that's, I think, the bigger concern about the interest rate cuts. On the other hand, not doing anything faced with the collapse in this market would be very risky. So it seems the other big factor uh, that is playing a role here is uh, the coronavirus pandemic. And to some extent, you know, we in the West have stopped talking about this so much. But I'm curious what what role the pandemic is still playing in, in hindering the Chinese economy. It's pivotal to the entire story of uh, 2022 in China because China roared into the year uh, uh, with relatively rapid growth. So rapid, in fact, in 2021 that it stretched its electricity system, its energy system. The beginning of the energy price surge that has now hit the entire world economy was in China in 2021 as, as a result of the speed of the Chinese recovery. Um, but crucially, the regime um, lagged in uh, ensuring the vaccination, the triple vaccination using Chinese vaccines of the elderly and most vulnerable parts of the Chinese population. And so when the latest uh, series of variants, highly infectious variants of, of COVID spread from the outside world to China earlier this year, they, they, Beijing faces a, an appalling dilemma. Um, because to maintain their zero COVID policy, they don't really have much option but to, to lock um, cities down because the vaccination rate for the vulnerable is still too low. And so starting you know, most dramatically in Shanghai in the spring, they have been in the business of imposing really comprehensive, absolutely crippling lockdowns on giant conurbations. I mean, this is so much more dramatic than anything we saw, maybe outside Latin America, and certainly nowhere in Western Europe or the United States experienced anything like what the Chinese have been going through. That cripples um, growth, it, it interrupts supply chains, and it and this is crucial given the real estate situation massively damages confidence. I wonder whether, uh, you know, provisionally, obviously, at least, we could offer some overall assessment of Xi's economic leadership, uh, So at least thus far in, in his tenure. I mean, how would you characterize his economic vision and how would you assess how he's been as an economic leader overall? Well, I think the zero COVID policy is the one area where you could say that under his leadership, the regime has really made a false step, a false move with absolutely disastrous consequences. I mean, uh, in the area of domestic policy, um, many people, I think, will fault the aggression of his foreign policy and the implications that's had for China's position in the world. But on the domestic front, the central issue will be this you know decision to dig in on zero covid the failure to roll out the vaccines and the impasse the dead end that this has created in 2022 and ongoing into 2023 for 
the Chinese economy. A first best solution, which was the Chinese hardline approach in 2020, has flipped into being a real disaster in 2022. And and he will forever be remembered, presumably, as as the, the man who really presided over this and identified himself with it. In broader terms, I think his legacy is 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 really is really mixed. Um, you know, he again and again, whether you look at the area of corruption or the role of state-owned enterprises or indeed foreign policy, there's this sort of ambiguity to his position. I mean, and, and, and it goes all the way back to the beginning, because it's worth remembering that when he came in in 2012, he, he was widely thought of as a reforming pro-market force. And there has been reform of a kind. So, you know, corruption was a real issue and the regime has really cracked down on it. But the way in which it's cracked down on it has been part of a paragraph by Xi and his and his immediate circle, um, or likewise with the state-owned enterprises. I mean, they have, in fact, become much more efficient and much more streamlined. Um, but as a way, if you like, of permanently consolidating their position within the within the economy. So I think one way of thinking about what she's doing is a kind of conservative consolidation of the CCP's power in the sphere of the economy. The party is now everywhere in the Chinese economy, even in the mm. private sector. So it isn't just simply that the state-owned enterprises have consolidated their position, but the party, which of course sits across the boundary line between the state and society in China, is now also operating in hedge funds in China, in every tech business um, in China. So again, a kind of a blend of, if you like, enlightened self-interest or enlightened authoritarian self-interest, all alongside the notorious, you know, crackdown on Hong Kong, which which is causing huge problems for China's relations with the West, and the even more brutal crackdown in in Xinjiang, and the upholding of claims to Taiwan, which have raised the tension. So a very complex picture in which the assertion of authoritarian power on behalf mm. of the party is, as it were, the organising. The organizing idea, but with ambiguous economic effects. Okay, so it sounds like the authoritarianism is what is consistent here, whether it's instrumental or not, uh, and yeah. to what ends is remains to be to be seen. Uh, yeah, I guess finally, I wanted to ask just generally whether China could be said to be caught in some version of what's called a middle income trap. I guess the idea being here that. You know, plenty of countries have found it, you know, relatively, I wouldn't say easy, but doable to go from being a sort of low income country to a middle income country. But the real challenge that where a lot of countries end up uh, stalling is precisely going from a middle income country to a high income country. I mean, is that China's experience right now? Does this sort of conform with a development pattern we've seen in other countries? Well, you know, China is a high middle income country, and its growth model does seem to have reached something of a dead end. So it's kind of tempting, I think, to conclude that, you know, it's in the middle income trap. Um, it's middle income, and it's in the trap. Um, and, and that would, you know, not just be, I think, tempting as a conclusion, but also comforting for Western analysts, because it would mean, in a sense, that we would predict that the Chinese challenge to Western power and influence um, would be, you know, would be in the process of grinding to a halt. So I think it would be convenient. And, and so my first reaction is really to suggest that we check our prejudices here, um, because this is just a little bit too convenient a story. Um, and the, the most basic question is perhaps what persuades us that the experience of a cluster of medium-sized middle-income countries um, really extrapolates to the experience of this giant social experiment that is economic growth under capitalism under the command of the CCP? 
I mean, is this really an analogous experience? Why, why would we think that this is like the experience of a Turkey or a Thailand um, uh, or an Indonesia or a Mexico? Like what, what would, why, why would we imagine that the, the rules that apply to them apply to China when China has defied so many other rules of, of economic development? You know, if it's true that Western social science extends to China, um, it would be a surprise to my, to my mind, rather than assuming that it's true. If you actually look at the problems that we think that China has, they're actually closer to those that Japan had in the 1990s. And Japan, by that point, was not a middle income country. So China may be suffering, if you like, at middle income levels from rich country problems. That might, that might as it were, get closer to the truth if you think about the real estate issue. And then the question is, can China find a way out of this? Is there, are there new policies that it could adopt? And given its current position, there are, there are huge numbers of avenues for further growth. Um, the most obvious is the labor force. And there are hundreds of millions of Chinese still at relatively rudimentary levels of education. At the same time, as we know that China is the world's leading producer of world-class STEM postgraduates. So that gap within China itself tells you how much opportunity there could be for growth. People will then say, oh, well, China's an aging population. But we all know what the answer to an aging population is, good health care and longer working lives. So that doesn't by itself have to be an absolute parameter that constrains Chinese growth. In areas like technology, for instance, um, China is a world leader, embattled, of course, because of the tech sanctions now being imposed and limited because you know developing ultra-high tech is is extremely demanding field, but nevertheless present. And then if you look at something like, you know, the green energy transition, China is not just a leader, it's absolutely the dominant force in the entire sector worldwide. So if the energy transitions for real, China's way ahead of everyone else. Now, this isn't to say, okay, fine, it's, you know, a gimme, like, it's, it's quite clear that Chinese growth doesn't face any, you know, it's going to take off and going to resume. I, I think that's actually quite unlikely. But on the other hand, these are all reasons for doubting that China's future is well predicted by the experience of a Mexico or a Turkey or a Thailand, for instance. Got it. <clears throat> That's a genuinely useful message, I think, especially for me as an American. So used to sort of, yeah, just growing up in the context of American exceptionalism, <laughs> you know, America having this singular messianic mission. You know, there are other countries that are exceptional in their own terms. Uh, in any case, this is why a Chinese recession is not just another recession. Uh, so in any case, we will leave it there for now, but we'll be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents. And I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. 
What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with better help. So the next data point is $84.1 billion. That is the estimated total economic activity across the United States produced solely by the sport of golf. That's according to a study commissioned by the World Golf Foundation. So maybe take that with a grain of salt. In any case, The findings also say there's a 22% increase in economic activity related to golf since 2011. By all accounts, golf picked up in popularity during the pandemic when it was considered a safe recreational activity, you know, social distancing, outdoors, etc. But in any case, golf is also a sport that's always been associated with business dealings of various kinds. And so, yeah, we thought we'd look at uh, the economics of golf in general. Before I get to the proper questions, I thought I'd just ask you, Adam, whether you play golf. I realize I don't know that. I've never played golf personally, but how about you? No, I'm in the same boat. I've never I've never played golf either. Okay. I find so it kind of therapeutic to watch on TV sometimes. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I could imagine that, except I literally don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know... I don't know. Basic uh, idea, you know, hit ball several times till it goes in a they hole. They get it into the ball. But yeah, maybe maybe that's why. I mean, I've always found, I just found it terribly boring to watch because I couldn't understand the mechanics. Like I couldn't understand what it meant to be playing well or not, having never played it myself. So it just Mini of, golf is a, it, like a painless introduction. You should go try it. You should join mini golf somewhere. That much, yes. That much I've, that much I've played. Uh, but, you know, the connection between mini golf and regular golf I leave to others to uh, analyze, but uh, okay. Anyway, uh, to get into the economics part of this, yeah, I mean, clearly golf is firmly established in the United States, but also the United Kingdom where golf was invented as a sport. But how about beyond that? I mean, has it, has golf become a global sport? And, and if it has, I mean, can we tell whether that expansion is a response to demand from Western tourists and, and business travelers, or if it's a kind of more of a, a local lead driven phenomenon? Well, it may have started out in the sort of the wider cultural ambit of the British empire, but, but golf now is emphatically a global, global sport, um, hugely present in East Asia. Um, so the top five world golf markets are the United States in number one, Japan, number two, South Korea, number three, Canada, mm. number four, UK only in number five. 
So the golf you know, industry estimates that about 67 million people play golf around the world, which I think on the back of an envelope is you know, just short of 1% of the world's population. And of though that 67 million, um, about 30 million are in North America, US and Canada. Um, about 10 million are in Europe, of which half is in the UK, Great Britain and Ireland, in fact. Um, and the rest is Asia. So it's really Japan, South Korea, which are the hugest markets. Uh, Koreans golfers spend more per capita on their golf equipment than anyone else in the world. Um, and they are really, they're really gigantic. Interesting. So I'm curious if you could tell us how golf earns its reputation for being yeah, an activity where business deals are, are struck. Is there really something to that data that would like support that reputation and and if so, what accounts for this kind of affinity between golf and business and, I guess, you know, business-related crimes, insider trading, et cetera, I've also seen as also occurring on the golf course? I think there absolutely is this association, and it's to do with the fact that golf was, for most of its history, a rich man's game. And I, you know, both those phrases deliberately. So um, as it spread around the Anglosphere in the late 19th century, it was above all a bourgeois um, sport uh, with some aristocratic involvement, of course, landowners uh, uh, contributed um, because you know space is at a premium. But above all, it was also a masculine thing. And down to this day, there are about a dozen clubs in the United States which are male only. Um, and I think that kind of clubbishness, the creation of a you know intensely um, confined inside a network um, of affluent men who then spend hours and hours and hours, you know, you know, following these balls around these beautifully manicured lawns. And the amount of time you actually spend hitting a ball is tiny by the comparison with the amount of time you spend wandering around um, and with every opportunity to talk has turned it into a privileged, you know, meeting ground um, for for the business elite. Um, and there are numerous well documented cases of you know, inside the trading, I mean, literally, you know, shares changing hands uh, in remarkably conspicuous fashions after shortly after, you know, significant executives from different companies or investors met on the golf course. And like the dark horse of, um, of golf, uh, Phil Mickinson um, was involved in, in 2012 in a, you know, a rather famous incident uh, using the lawns as, a, as an occasion just for private discreet meeting. So it's just as simple as rich people being together for a long time. Rich men, eventually yeah, get I around. think. Yeah. Rich, men, yeah. rich men, in the end, get around to no good, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Give them exactly. long enough. And they're outdoors, there's nothing else to, to yeah. do, and eventually you get to crime, that's yeah. just what happens. Well, um, you know, insider trading, is like, <laughs> it's such a weird crime. It's basically just, you know, gossiping. Yeah, uh, gossiping. Yeah. It's such yeah, a fine yeah, sure. line between insider trading and just what everyone does in business all the time. So I think, mm. um, you know, it's rather the other way around. People were doing what, you know, business people do. And then a bunch of pesky laws came along and, and made it, made it uh, all wrong and, you know, criminal. There you go. Sounds like a, a reason to ban golf entirely. It's just sort of unreformable. But, uh, yeah, another thing that's been in the news is that Saudi Arabia is now in the midst of trying to establish a professional golf tour to rival the PGA that goes by the name of LIV, the LIV golf tour. That's that's a, a Roman numeral, actually. So it would be 54, which I guess is the something about scoring par on every hole, et cetera, or something. But as a result of this, the PGA, the existing golf tour, is sort of barring its professional members, the professional golf players, from participating in the Saudi golf tour. And this just got me wondering, you know, 
how did the PGA sort of become this kind of de facto monopoly that can bar its players from playing elsewhere? And why are so many U.S. professional sports leagues organized in this kind of de facto monopoly cartel system way in the first place? I mean, why is sort of the government allow sports to get organized this way, Adam? Yeah, this this Saudi venture is quite fascinating. Introduced me to the new concept of sports washing. You know, not like green washing, but ah. sports washing. So like the, you know, the somewhat tattered brand of the kingdom associates itself with with uh, global sport. I mean, they do it in all sorts of areas, right? With uh, Ramco backing Formula One and um, so on. Um, so it's a it's a it's a not altogether surprising venture by the by the Saudis. Um, it's a great question, though. Um, this idea of um, sports leagues and uh, as essentially quasi monopolistic organizations. And the, the logic here is really quite subtle and interesting, which is that to ensure, you know, good competition, close competition, you have, in a sense, to manage the league as something other than a commercial free-for-all. You have to be willing, for instance, to impose salary caps, which ultimately constrain what everyone in the league can earn. You have to be willing to manage the flow of new recruits to teams so as to level the playing field. All of this, frankly, to a European mind, if you come from the world of European soccer, which is much closer to a fully capitalist free-for-all where wealth just simply buys the biggest players at whatever price they command. And as a result, you get these dynasties established which dominate sports over decades. In, in the US model, you have this much more manicured vision of, of competition, which, however, depends on rigorously policing the boundaries of the league, um, as you say, defining a kind of monopolistic control over who gets to compete and on what terms in a given sport. And they do this for the sake of the spectators, right? Because the entire thing is then much more entertaining because you never know exactly who's going to be on top and you're constantly rigging the market. In this particular case, yes, the, the, some of the players that took part in the Saudi venture sued the PGA. And then, um, in fact, LIV, the, the Saudi venture, has also joined this case so far, I think um, it, very few legal analysts think that they're going to make much headway against the PGA because, again, in American law, there is a, there's a distinction, and it's quite a subtle one, between the PGA legitimately defending its commercial interests against the competitor and the PGA in foul ways, in, in illegitimate ways, as it were, undermining their capacity to compete at all and inflicting deliberate harm on them. And, and one of the points that the PGA's lawyers have made is like, where is the harm to the players that have enrolled in the Saudi league if the Saudi league is, in, is forced by the PGA's resistance to pay them more? I mean, because these are highly valued players who were previously prominent in the PGA and have to lure them out. Of course, the Saudis have offered, had to offer them a, a golden purse. And now those players also want to be able to compete in the PGA, right? And the court says, no, hang on, like, you know, you can choose between the two and you can benefit from the competitive uh, situation created by the PGA's resistance on the Saudi side. But you can't, as it were, both have your cake and eat it. Fascinating. Uh, obviously, another remarkable thing about the sport of golf is just the enormous golf courses where the sport needs to be played. And got me wondering about how those golf courses get established in the first place. Because it seems to me these days, like land is something that is generally seems scarce in the West these days. It's constantly hear about fights over land, uh, over land usage. So I don't know, how do golf course developers raise the money for new courses? And 
how do they acquire this land? Or is there kind of like backdoor deals involved in, in, in getting these courses established in the first place? Yeah, I mean, as we know from Trump's struggles in you know Scotland and Ireland, it, this is a hugely political issue. The average golf course takes about, you know, it's a substantial piece of real estate, 50 to 70 hectares. So that's 120 to 180 acres per course. Um, So these are pretty substantial. And there's 38,000 of them worldwide. So in the United States alone, it's estimated that um, golf courses take up uh, a territory the size of Delaware and Rhode Island put together. So, you know, there could be a state of golf um, in, in the US Congress. In fact, quite rapidly <laughs> set this up, I think, with many existing members of, of that illustrious house. I mean, and it's a remarkable global development. It's really driven in the first instance by suburban wealth. And that's really the dominating force in the history of golf courses. And it's a commercial business, right? It's a it's club formation, members subscribe, you buy up the lands, you can buy up all sorts of different types of land. There's quite a lot of courses in the United States built on landfills to just reuse land. But by far and away, the most dramatic development it was in Asia um, in the, from the 60s onwards, and, and most dramatically of all in Japan during the boom period of the 70s, 80s, and then into the early 90s when it all imploded. And in Japan, um, you know, golf course memberships were trading. There was a, there was a bourse, there was a, an exchange for golf club memberships where people would bid one, two, over $2 million for the most exclusive memberships in Tokyo clubs. And it all came crashing down in the 1990s. And then astonishingly, large scale global investors, um, including Goldman Sachs, um, got into the business of buying up bankrupt Japanese golf clubs and assembled entire portfolios of, if you like, subprime Japanese golf clubs and, um, and then marketed those. So that was, you know, the kind of the final stage, if you like, of the financialization of golf. Um, it was moving from elite social status and the sort of suburbanization as this mass phenomenon to the creation of these baubles that, you know, golf club memberships were in Japan in the 80s to then the re-metabolization of those assets as the underpinnings for securities, essentially, in, in the 90s and early 2000s, from which then Goldman Sachs and everyone else could exit as you then handed these assets off to other investors. Got it. Uh, I guess... Finally, I mean, you're mentioning just how vast these courses are. I wonder how much money goes into maintaining these golf courses. And yeah, just from a business model perspective, is that money well spent? Does the kind of money on maintenance actually pay off in terms of the revenues that these courses courses generate? You know, the costs are not as huge as I anticipated, actually. I mean, apparently, you know, I've looked at quite a lot of studies of golf course management over the last day or two. And um, broadly speaking, you know, for a substantial modern private golf course, the maintenance of the the grounds is, you know, between one and three million dollars, maybe, depending Hmm. on what kind of class of course you're talking about um you're spending per club member maybe in the order of a couple of thousand maybe as much as three thousand dollars um which then if you average this over a a, you know reasonably busy um golf club means that the average round of golf is probably requiring the spending of about 50 to 60 dollars in grounds maintenance so those are the kind of, you know, figures. So it's like one round of golf is the equivalent of three hours of reasonably well-paid yard work, basically. You know, if you think of yard work being paid at about $20 an hour, 
So that would be, you know, that would be the rough trade-off. Some, you know, relatively affluent person pays somebody else to mow the lawn for three hours so as they can, you know, have enjoy their round of golf. <laughs> that was a lot of economics of golf all at once, but uh, there's a lot to that topic. Hopefully people enjoyed it. And uh, unfortunately, we have to, to leave it there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about.
Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.